listening to Syntax, the podcast with the tastiest web development treats out there. Strap yourself in and get ready. Here is Scott Talensky and Wes Boss. Welcome to Syntax. My name is Wes Boss. I'm a full stack developer. With me, as always, is Scott Talensky. How are you doing today, Scott? Hey, I'm doing super good. Uh, ready to get started on this episode here. It's a lovely Monday morning. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. I just went through, obviously I went through a huge launch with my advanced React course and maybe we should talk about what we're talking about. We are doing sort of like a pre-launch checklist website. These are things that you should check before you push a website live to the world. And this is mostly from experience with things that I've dropped the ball on myself many times over. Today's sponsor is two awesome companies. First one is Sentry, which is going to help you track down all of those errors, both on your client side and your server side, as well as .tech domain names, which is going to allow you to find a decent domain name with a .tech extension. So the way that we've sort of structured this episode is we're just going to sort of run through all the little things that you should try to figure out before or, or check yourself before you go live. So we're going to look at per, some performance stuff. Some You should have, you missed an opportunity for check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, that's good. Uh, what else? We've got some tips from the trenches, compatibility, content, accessibility, SEO, analytics, server stuff. You should check yourself different company processes. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you should be checking before you actually launch a website. And it's easy to accidentally forget about some of these things, or it's easy to have these things where it looks works fine on my machine and, and you're not actually thinking about the broader world. We're going to be going through all of those. You want to kick her off there, Scott? Yeah, let's do it. I think a, a good overall tip for this stuff is, is to let some robots do some work for you because we have some of these auditing tools that exist both all on individual websites along with in-browser extensions and stuff like take advantage of these tools like Lighthouse I think is Lighthouse is built into Chrome I think you can yeah do it's it. Chrome Dev Tools you yeah, can run Chrome it online Tools. as well I think it's under the audit tab right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you'll want to take advantage of those things. There's SEO checkers. There's like a billion SEO checkers that'll, they'll make sure that your, your um, SEO content and all that stuff is, is as it should be. And then, you know, you have accessibility checkers as well, both built into Lighthouse, but there's also acts outside of Lighthouse. But really the, the overarching point is these things are going to give you a checklist essentially of things that you haven't done. It's going to alert you when there's things that you have and haven't done. So overall, if you're feeling like, oh, I don't know what to look at next, go and hit up some of these tools, specifically Lighthouse, and, and just go through some of the things that it's letting you know that you still need to do. Because I think that's an easy, easy, super easy win right there. Next one we have is performance. This is really important because often we're just developing the websites locally on our computer and they load instantly because everything is local <laughs> to our computer, right? But as soon as you put that sucker up online, you start to get people complaining about performance. Maybe the website's loading really slowly. Maybe you forgot to. I see this all the time, especially in like bootcamp students where they don't necessarily know that their website's going to be slow to load and they have like a six meg header JPEG that needs to load before anything looks decent. So either flipping on the slow performance tools in your Chrome Dev Tools or just putting it up online and, and trying to load it from without any sort of cache installed yourself. And that will often arise little performance issues as well as little things where, oh, maybe the first time it loads, it doesn't actually work. And the second time around it does actually work. So what can you do for that? What I do every single time before I launch a website is I'll open up Chrome Dev Tools. I'll go to the media tab and I'll do a hard refresh of the website. And then I'll look at all of the assets and I'll, I'll 
look at like the top like 12% mm -hmm. and, and say like, that's way too big for an image or that PNG should be a JPEG or this MP4. I often have auto playing MP4 on my course website. Those shouldn't be loaded on page load. They should only be loaded like after the, the page is actually like, like lazy loaded in or only when someone scrolls to it or, so, or only when someone clicks onto it. So how can you do that? Build processes. You can have something built right into it that will compress all of your images. You can use something like Cloudinary, which will you just put a little URL in front of it or upload your images to Cloudinary. Um, Image Optum is another really good uh, free one. What's that one that I always used with with my gulp task that would compress my images? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah. Imageman. 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 Yeah, Imageman is awesome. So if yeah. you haven't used Imageman before, you can use it with Gulp or Webpack or anything like that. And you can just kind of suck up all of your images and then it will pipe them through all of the different like Moz JPEG is a really good one for JPEGs. SVGO is a good one for SVG files. There's a good PNG one. And it will just kind of sort of crank down the compression on all of those images. And it's worth sending all of your stuff through one of those if you're not using a service yeah. uh, that already does it for you. Yeah, in addition to compressing too, make sure that the sizes are correct. If you're not using like a picture fill to serve up the correct sizes for the correct browser sizes, if you're throwing up a, an image that's 2000 pixels wide or something like that, don't do that. Like the biggest mistakes I see like occur very frequently is people just don't pay attention to the size of images. So if you're not using something like Cloudinary that's going to automatically give you the correct sizes or you're not using a picture fill to host several different sizes, the largest size, whatever you're hosting, just make sure it's it's reasonable. I remember that was maybe the first mistake that I launched with when I was like maybe on my very first site project, like very first site project is just like, oh, you just link up an image and there it is. Okay. Never think about it ever again. And this was way back in like way, 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 way back. And, and somebody was just like, oh, you know, Dreamweaver has a button built in. You just click it and it makes the image the right size. I was like, oh, cool, cool, man. <laughs> that was my first experience with like loading up a giant, giant image yeah. it was like on my very first website. You know, I just didn't even think about it. So that's an easy one to, to do when you're a new developer. Totally. There's another one of these image processing companies, Image IX. I met them. I was at FITC conference and they had a booth there. And uh, as I do at, at conferences, I always go around and get all the swag from the swag. conferences because I, I need more stickers and pens. Yeah. And I was just, <laughs> just just chatting with it. And it seems like they do kind of a similar thing to uh, what Cloudinary does where you can compress your images on the fly with with an API. Cool. Um, I haven't used them yet. I don't know if it's, it's any good or not, but I just thought I'd, I'd mention that if people are looking for options. So there's a lot Lots of good options there. Just make sure that you compress everything as small as you possibly can, especially if you're a developer on like a fiber line where everything works fine for you. But it can be pretty expensive on uh, uh, especially if someone's on like a cell phone and you like someone loads the page. They have no idea how big that page is going to be until they've actually loaded it. And in Canada, if you go over your like your budget, I think it's like per I think it's like $20 per 100 oh. megs. Yeah. So like, uh, like uh, easy, easy. You can accidentally do 20, 25 megs if you don't compress your images on a website. Obviously way too large. But like I've definitely seen websites that do that. And so like that just costs someone five bucks to, to load your website. That's you got to be really careful about that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's like irresponsible. Yeah. What other things can we do? Obviously, minify your code. So whether you're running that through Uglify or, or any of these other things that will minify your JavaScript as well as your CSS, 
What else you got here? Code splitting. That's probably something you should be thinking about when you're designing the architecture of your application. So if there's a hunk of code, I always use shopping cart example. If you don't need to load that until someone hovers over a buy button or, mm-hmm. or someone visits the shopping cart button, then, then load that thing in. Page speed. The Google page speed test is also another really good one. That one I really like because it will often surface different like caching settings on your server that you didn't necessarily know about. And those are often like a quick copy paste from a stack overflow in your HT access or something like that to get them going. And then the last one we have here is don't service worker on launch. I actually don't run service workers on my own website. I kind of feel like I I should, especially on like the back end. My dream would be to service worker the videos and everything. I've talked about this. If you go back to the what's the episode we did on like web apps or something like that. Yeah, progressive web apps. That was episode 50 on progressive web apps. We talked about uh, what service workers are and whatnot. But the thing about service workers is that you can cache your entire page or, or just parts of it. But most people just cache the entire page. And then when someone visits that website again, it will serve up the cached version immediately. And then in the background, it will go and check if there's a new service worker available. And that can be a bit of a pain if you are making quick changes. Like often I'll launch and I'll I'll notice a little spelling mistake or I'm getting lots and lots of the same questions. So I'll quickly redeploy a fix for that. And that would have to require somebody to manually reload the page again, provided that you actually in the background were invalidating the old cache in your service worker, because that's how service workers work, is that when you load the page that's a cached version, it will in the background check if there's a new service worker available, like an updated version. And in that new service worker, you have to then manually invalidate all of the old files and then pop up some sort of alert box or something, or you can do window.location.reload to actually manually reload the page, but that's kind of a pain to your user. Yeah, definitely makes more sense than like an application style, like a, like Todoist or TweetDeck or some of those that are like, would you like to run the new version of this application? Like that yeah. seems very different to me than like a website, you know? So I guess the next thing we have on the list is, oh, actually, uh, before we get to the next one, I do want to talk one thing about code splitting, too. Like, I don't know. I was thinking about, like, code splitting and how awesome it is. But wouldn't it be great if you just didn't have to do any of that yourself? Like, if you didn't have to determine when it code split and it just did it all for you, like, that would be great. It just, uh, it doesn't do it. There's no, there's, I'm not, I don't have, like, something to present to you that's magical oh, to thought, do this. I thought you were, I thought you were trying to transfer it to an ad or something. I was like, what ad are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I was just, I was just pontificating <laughs> over here a little bit about a world where everything uh, splits for you and it only loads where it has to and, and all that good stuff. So no, it is good. Splitting the bill with FreshBooks. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, uh, that would be cool. It, what you can do, obviously, you have to use dynamic imports, right? And then right. you have to import that thing at the top. React Suspense will help with that, actually. Um, yeah. Because yeah. I'm excited because for that. you just kind of we'll have a show on React Suspense kind of help that. But yeah, it would be neat if it just kind of figured it out all for you. It's much better than it used to be. You used to have to like set up manual code bundles be like okay my cart goes in this one and in this one and now if you just use dynamic imports your Mm -hmm. bundle tool will be able to figure out how to actually split it up but you you still have to figure out yourself where should i be using a dynamic import and where should i be using a a regular import what's a regular import called static just a yeah i guess normal yeah yeah import (laughs) 
Yeah, I use that pretty much for the same way you said, where I have my, my shopping cart and any of those libraries behind a dynamic import and mm-hmm. um, what React Loadable. And you can get all, all great, great server-side rendering and all that stuff with it too. So next we wanted to get into compatibility, which is one thing that we've been touching on in the hasty treats for the past few episodes. Browser compatibility is maybe not something you want to leave entirely for the end, but it's definitely something that you need to check at the end of the line here before you're launching because maybe even you, you deployed a change and it had a small little thing in it. And uh, maybe that library or whatever you added all of a sudden has some sort of big incompatibility. So you do want to you do want to test pretty heavy on um, actual browsers that need to be supported. We used to have various machines in the office to test on older browsers or something like that. I think it is important to fire it up on an IE, IE you know, 11 or IE 10 or whatever you're supporting at that time, an Edge browser, a Safari, whatever, just fire it up. Make sure everything works. Make sure everything's looking fine. There's always going to be one or two little things that you could not prepare for, even if you feel like you have a great grasp on compatibility. There's just, your brain just isn't always going to have 100% coverage on all of the compatibility issues. I also like to have, if, if you have like a, a staging environment that's somewhat public, I like to have other people use it on their phones. I'll frequently ask my wife, Courtney, to try it out on her phone before I go up in my staging environment and say, hey, can you just fire this up and make sure everything feels fine to you? And then she'll mm-hmm. just try it out. And, and, you know, she's a normal user, so she's going to try it out as if a normal user is. And she's not going to know where to press and what to do. And everything's going to feel a little bit different for her. So having her test out the compatibility in those sort of ways is a, is a big help. So if you can find someone in your office that's maybe not like the most tech savvy person or maybe not the developer developer or someone who's had their hand in their code and just ask them to use it on whatever browser they have on their phone or whatever. That's good. You can also use a service like Browser Stack. I don't use Browser Stack myself. I know you don't either, Wes. Is that correct? I've definitely used it in the past. It's kind of expensive. So what I've done maybe six or seven times in the past is I've just like dipped in for a month, done my work and then canceled my subscription um, just when I specifically need it. But I'd much rather, like we've talked about in the Hasty Treats, much rather have the hardware or VM of the actual browser or the real device in hand. Yeah. So Browser Stack is a service that allows you to test your stuff on uh, 2,000 plus browsers and Android, iOS and Android devices. So, um, you know, check that out if you're looking for more of like a service as a solution there for compatibility testing. One other thing I've run into is um, just ratios. So I have my checkout form and I had tested it and I always use like I almost always just use media queries that are based on the width. Right. But I ran into some situation where if people on like 11 inch MacBook Airs, their screens are like wide and not as tall. Mm -hmm. And I was running into a situation where there was like maybe like 50 pixels of screen sizes where you couldn't press the actual buy button on the checkout form. And uh, it was because I I had not been testing it on, I'd just been testing it on widths, right? And then I also checked, I also tested it on heights, but there was like a, like a golden ratio of width and height where it perfectly mm. wasn't working. <laughs> Luckily the developers are like, by the way, I just used inspect element and figured it out. Yeah. Uh, and I pressed the button myself. <laughs> but Developers as an audience, and- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> I had great. to go back and fix it. Other thing is busting caches. So if you have a style.css, another problem I had on my advanced React is I had like a sale banner at the top and then I have a login button on the top right corner. And I had some CSS to say if there's a sale button, if there's a sale banner and a login button that are siblings, then you can then move 
move the button down or it's so it's not there. But something went wrong with it and I had to update some uh, one or two lines of CSS and I fixed it. But then everyone has the old cache version of your your CSS. So I just go my way of busting cache is I just put a little query param on the end of CSS, just question mark V equals 27. And then that will signal to the browser that it's an old, there's a new version of CSS available because the query param is a new URL. And then it will just delete the old one, download the, the new version of it. Nice. West boss busting cash, busting caches. Yeah. <laughs> busting ash and busting cash. <laughs> uh, uh, so next we have a, a one that's it, it's actually, this is something that we both definitely run into this more so than a lot of other maybe sites because we're both running e-commerce platforms and if you're running into things with sales where you're taking credit cards and charging this is actually one of those things that is a little scary I think in terms of yeah. if going live if there's one thing that I manually test more than anything on my site it's the checkout I make sure that the subscription form works and I make sure that the credit card checkout works and I do so very, very intensely. So there's one thing that I really test is to make sure that my checkout flow is working correctly. And uh, this one is sort of interesting. I think different platforms between Stripe, Braintree, PayPal, or whatever, they all make it of varying degrees easy to test these things. I think Stripe makes sales the easiest to test. Braintree probably makes them not so easy to test. And then I know from experience from subscriptions, Stripe does not make testing subscriptions super easy, oddly enough, where Braintree actually makes it way easier. So what are some things that you think are important before dealing with credit cards and, and things like that? This is just from personal experiences. Uh, first one is have multiple people test the checkout. Like one story, I think I've told this on the podcast before, but when I launched one of my courses way back, a couple of years ago, um, I had installed this node package that would charge PayPal. It was like a third party node package. I know I complain a lot about PayPal, but this is not PayPal's problem. And I did an NPM install and then I deployed it to my server. And this was before we had the NPM package lock where you could specify exact versions mm -hmm. of an NPM package. And what had happened is the author had really a new version of the package, but didn't understand how the new let let and const variables were scoped. So what was happening is that uh, everybody who on the server, everyone was using the same PayPal checkout token and people were getting this error like this token has already been used because of the way that the variables were being scoped. And I was like, what is going on with this thing? I, it works fine locally. And it was because between me installing it locally and working it and pushing it up to my server and NPM installing it, there had been a new version of this package, just a minor version bump. And that had introduced and I I found this out by going through the GitHub commits and seeing the changes that had been introduced. And so I quickly, I just like just jumped into my node modules folder and just like monkey patched it really quickly and then sent a, a pull request to the actual repo and, and had a fix. But that's just like a perfect example of like, and that's everyone's horror of using all of these third party packages where you just like use a kind of a you're like, just give me the latest version of the little tilde that I'm using or the little the little carrot in my mm -hmm. NPM packages. Somebody could actually introduce a breaking change into your code. But that's been since solved with the package lock. That's what package lock will do is it'll make sure that you're using the exact version all the way down through the dependency tree. That's one problem I've run into. The other one is make sure that the name of what shows up on people's 
people's credit card bills is that they know it. So a big problem that I have is people open their credit card bill uh, like a week or two after buying and they say, like, what is my company name is Boss Type Inc. Oh. They say, what is Boss Type Inc.? And it's either somebody from accounting in the company or it's a, a spouse of the person who shares a credit card with it. And uh, it, unfortunately, sometimes they'll just dispute it because they have no idea what that is, right? They think you're a typography company. Yeah. So I uh, fonts. Slang and fonts. <laughs> no, the, the reason why it's called boss type is because my wife is actually a print designer, which has type. And I'm a programmer, which also has types. Mm. And her name is Boss. You like that? I do. So I we do. both have types in it's our a, careers. It's illuminating. Yeah, I finally get it now. <laughs> There you go. Anyways, I don't put that on people's credit card bills anymore. I think it shows up as West Boss slash React or West Boss slash the actual course that they're they're working on. Somebody actually showed me that a photo of me now shows up on some banking websites, which nice. is hilarious. That so, is hilarious. Uh, they know. And the, the other thing we did is if it does show boss type, we also have our phone numbers listed on that. We just have a simple boss type.com website we threw up like four or five years ago when we made the corporation. And then that just has quick phone number. All the time I get cards. Hey, I'm in accounting from company XYZ. What do you do? Oh, your developer probably bought something. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, no problem. I'll follow up with them. Mm -hmm. And then they, they hang up. And that, that stops a lot of um, unnecessary chargebacks because it's a pain. If someone accidentally charged back something, you get charged 15 bucks and it goes in for a review and then you have to contact the person and they have to contact their bank and have it revoked. And it's just a nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. I know whenever I get a, an email that says the chargeback, I'm like, oh, what do I, I yeah. got to do now? Okay. So, okay. So we got sales and credit cards. So I mentioned that this is something that I personally test very intensely because it's it's a key component to, to my business. And most of the things that, that are key components to my business, I really make sure that I have a handle on the errors and sort of the things that are coming up when people are actually using the sites. And that's one of the reasons why I use Sentry personally to actually make sure that if something's happening on the live site that I did not plan for, that I'm not only alerted, but I have a catalog of it. I know who and what browser is happening to them on, and I, I can really catalog these and file issues and get these issues taken care of. So Sentry at Sentry.io is one of the essential parts of my workflow, and I know Wes you use Sentry yourself. Yeah, that's when I launch a course, you better bet that I actually have Sentry open because it's the first time that lots of people are in production are going to be going through likely a new code base. And that's where you often run into a bunch of issues. So I'll sort of keep my eyes on Sentry. I'm, I'm about to launch a big update to my player as well as a big update to the backend management. And when I push that code, I'll be watching my Sentry dashboard to see any errors that will pop up, any any commonalities between them. I've mentioned before in the past that I've been quickly been able to figure out there is an error on this specific version of iOS only on an iPad. And I was able to, to find that bug and, and be able to fix it. Uh, so Sentry is awesome just because you don't have to worry about your users telling you there's an error. Like we joke, it's nice to have developers as an audience, but most people don't have web developers in an audience or web developers might not might not even care to, to let you know something's gone wrong. They'll close the tab and move along with yep. their life. You just lost the sale, right? So sign up for Sentry error tracking. I have it installed both on my client side that catches all the JavaScript in the browser, have it installed on my server side mm -hmm. that will handy, handle any errors that 
any errors that actually happen on my server. You can get two months free. Century does have a, a free plan that you can sign up for, but you're going to get an upgraded plan. So if you go over in the free plan, you sometimes will go over the amount of alerts that you can have, especially if you write terrible code like I do. So you can get two months free at Century.io using the coupon code TastyTreat. And that's for anyone, not just new users. So if you have an existing account, you can still take advantage of that. The coupon code is TastyTreat, all one word. So thanks so much to Centuries for sponsoring. Thank you. Yeah. Again, it is so key that if you launch and you have a bunch of errors that you at least can determine where those errors are coming from and how to solve them, because there's nothing worse than getting those reports. It's not working. And you're like, oh, but it is working. No, it's not working. Oh, uh oh. What do I yeah, do? Yeah, I'm often even amazed at developers who email me saying it doesn't work yeah. or there's an error. You know better or than it's, that. Yeah. It's the worst is it's glitchy. Like, yeah. what is glitchy? What does that mean? What Tell me more. Mean? Like, what browser are you using? Like, are you not a web developer? Do you not know that people need more information to, to solve it? Like, if you just tell me it's not working, I go, oh, sorry, let me turn the working switch back on. I had tripped over that. Yeah, I had somebody that was using it as a, uh, it was like a hostage for like a hostage situation for a free account. They were like, do you have bug on your site? And I was just like, okay, can you, can you tell me what, what this is or like what the idea is here? And they were just like, if you give me a, a free subscription, I will tell you what the bug is. I was oh, just man. like, uh, I don't know how to even address that because like, I, chances are, if you would have just told me what the bug is, I would have been, you know, grateful and I yeah. probably would have hooked you up. But the fact that you're like holding it hostage is like not the right idea. That's not yeah, the right no, idea. that's not cool at all. There's yeah. there's definitely like way better ways to get in good with somebody than holding their holding <laughs> I, it hostage. I actually got it out of them too. And it was like, it was something that was by design. It was like not even a bug. And I was just like, come on, like this is, oh yeah, yeah, it was weak. <laughs> okay. So next we have, sorry, did you want to do this tips from the trenches now? Or do you want to do moving on to? Yeah, let's do it now. I think it's interesting to oh. put it in the, in the middle. Okay. So next we have something that we're, we're calling tips from the trenches, which is just some generic, some sort of interesting things. They're sort of like all over the place about, just things that we've run into personally, or maybe not personally, but you know others have. And one of these things that I think is extremely important, this isn't necessarily anything I've had a problem with, but you'll want to make sure that your API endpoints are totally secured. You do hear horror stories of people launching and they think that no one's going to backwards engineer, reverse engineer their API yeah. or something like that. Yeah, people will. People will try to do anything. So make sure your API endpoints are secured. Make sure that uh, you only have access, the people who need access and whatever get access and no one else does. So double check your API endpoints if you're working on a server-side application or a full, full stack application. Client-side validation is not enough. It is certainly not enough. No. Other things, scale up your box just in case. So if you're using a hosting platform, I specifically am currently on DigitalOcean and I was on their $5 plan for a long time. And the thing that kills me and the $5 plan is is works fine in, in almost all day long, except when I use my email list and DDoS myself by sending <laughs> many like, like 7,000 people to the website at one time. So just scale it up. You can always scale it back down when you need it. But if 
if you're, I know that a lot of services will auto scale. That's even better. I'm looking at moving over to something like that, but just so you don't actually have anything fall over on you and just be safe, spend an extra 20 bucks a month to scale it up and then you can scale down if you need it. Other things I've done in the past, early access, my my advanced React course, I put up for early access about three weeks before I actually launched it. And then the way that I did it was that I just told people click soon 30 times. So it was it just said coming soon and you could click the word soon 30 times and then it would pop open a a button to buy it. I think I clicked it like a couple hundred times when you told me that and it just kept going. (laughs) I was like, oh, let's see if it has a limit. And I just kept going and it filled the screen with O's. And then I was just like, huh. Yeah, this is going to stop. (laughs) The cool thing about that is I just posted it in my Slack room and I said, don't tell anyone how to get access to it, because if they don't read this message, I don't want them testing my course. And it was the best because people all day long were like, how do I get access to it? It just says coming soon. And they're like, did you not read the three sentences I posted? Then it's not for you because you can't follow some simple directions. And then I also had people, a lot of people view source and find the the code and read through the code and figure out how to, oh, this is what the code does. Mm-hmm. Let me now go ahead and, and the, for sure, I want you testing my course. You've great attention to detail. So it's kind of a nice way to go about it. And then the the night before I launch, I just push it live. And what's what's nice about that is that uh, it's just Australians. I'm pretty sure that's all who is awake, Australians and Russians. Uh, on the website and then you wake up in the morning with a couple sales because people have found people are just checking the website looking for it to go up as well as you sort of soft launch it and then you wake up to three or four emails of little bugs here and there that you haven't caught. And yeah. uh, it's helpful to see that. This might be a surprise to some level of pro subscribers or even people on the level up tutorials subscription. But I typically am launching my courses quite a bit before I announce that I've launched them because I want to launch them and I want the subscribers who just see it up there. Right. I want them yeah. to test it out and, and run everything. And then if I don't want my users to obviously test the thing, so things are going to be working when they're up. But let's say mm-hmm. there's something catastrophic going on. Then that way I didn't just blast out to all of my followers and everyone else that, you know, this thing is up and going and then have you know, a whole bunch of people coming there at once when there's a thing and then maybe they won't ever come back. Right. So, again, I like the soft launch. I like launching and then maybe not necessarily announcing it until you know for sure that everything is is 100 uh, percent feeling all right and looking good. Another one I have is uh, make sure your URLs are accurately coded. Sometimes people in the flow of things will just put a URL into their site or maybe it's like a WordPress site where the URLs are, are like written from the database. But occasionally you'll see that situation where you'll have a local host forward slash images forward slash scott.png and maybe your server is currently running on your local yeah, host at that moment kill your local servers and, yeah and so you're like well it looks fine on my machine all the images are loading and then uh, someone else somewhere else who doesn't have a local host 3000 running with your images they're like what the heck is this all the images are broken uh so make sure your your urls for your images are written correctly obviously don't use any sort of uh, local or staging or whatever environment you want those coded correctly so that it's pulling the actual full path full root url to your site other things is just keep your eye on your email i've had people like when you launch something people always try to reverse engineer figure out how it works i had somebody figure out that my free courses that he could change the course code 
of the free course and get access to my paid courses, which was amazing. And I was like, oh, man, it's amazing. And I actually ended up paying out that guy some cash because of that report that could have costed me a tons if that got out because people could have been signing up for my paid courses all day long. Mm-hmm. So keeping your eye, eye on your email when stuff like that, keeping your Twitter. I have my Twitter DMs open all the time, which is probably not a great idea because I get a lot. But when I launch something, I always keep my eye on it just in case because people will often say, hey, something's wrong. And I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate that because nothing is worse than launching something and all of the replies to your launch tweet being, hey, this doesn't work. (laughs) It's broken. Is this funny? Looks like you're missing this. And it's like, oh, thanks. I just spent my last nine months on this. And now all of the replies, because I also pin those tweets to my profile. I want all of the tweet replies to be common questions or people reviewing it, things or like praise. that. And then, yeah, high praise. Yeah, high, yeah, I want it to be good things, right? So, one little way around that is just not replying to or replying to them out of the thread so that they don't get bumped up in the tweet reply way. So, that's my little, little uh, <laughs> way around that. But nice. it always is such a bummer when you're you launch something and all of the replies are like, you're missing a you're missing an L in the word cool here or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And you will hear about those. That's for sure. And I guess that leads us right into our next one, which is like the content, right? I mean, that was a perfect lead. And I don't know if you were attempting to do that, but spelling errors in grammar is a big one. And as someone um, like myself who cannot spell things to save their life, you'll want other people to evaluate these or even better have spell checkers, have stuff like that. But again, have people proofread your stuff because if you were writing it or the content writers writing it, maybe they're just so engrossed in whatever they're doing that maybe they missed something or have some fresh eyes on it. Basically, make sure someone's looking over your content for spelling or grammar errors, somebody who knows what they're doing in that regard. Yeah, I always have people who are very like I have a list of people in my email who are so nitpicky. Anytime somebody cares enough to send me like a huge email full of all of the grammar spelling clarifications, I always save that because those are the kind of people I need going through my website right before I launch it because they have such a keen eye for that. And I I don't. We're joking that my gravestone is going to have a spelling mistake on it. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, it's funny because I can count on Courtney for that because like she she is the absolute master of like, I'll show her a design and it's just for an aesthetic purpose only. I'll be like, it'll be in like Figma, it'll be like really r- rough mock-up and I'll be like, what do you think of this general design idea? You're like, you spelled yeah. component wrong. That's not what I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I'm asking. Uh, so that definitely happens. But you, you want to find somebody who has that eye. Like that is the ideal situation for that. Yeah, those people, are, I feel for those people because it must be hard for them to live in this world where that stuff bugs them so much. But I also really appreciate them because it's so helpful. It's so for helpful. Finding those little things. Especially yeah. for people like us. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I need all the help I can get. Next, you'll want to make sure that you have a 404 page working accurately to let users know where their content, like where there's no content, right? Because, you know, they browse to maybe a misspelled URL route or something like that. And it's important to get them back on track to where they need to go. Really helpful four pages can be dope too, where they're like, did you mean to say this? Although that is quite a bit more extra work, you know. Totally. A leftover placeholder text. One thing I always do when I'm building a, a new course site is I take the last course that I worked on, I dupe it over and then I just start changing it. And often I'll accidentally leave in an FAQ or like the if someone tweets out a social link, it's to the old URL, things like that. So making sure that you don't have any leftover placeholder text or leftover 
content from something else. I've even seen it very embarrassing. I've, I've seen people launch course websites with my own FAQ in it because they clearly just like copy pasted it. I've had words with them, <laughs> obviously. That's awesome. But yeah. just like make sure you're not like straight up jacking other people's content or placeholder text. Yeah, I think that's an ultimate like if you've ripped off someone's design and then you look at their meta tags and their keywords and it says Scott Talinsky is a full stack developer <laughs> inside of their code, you're just like, hmm, I wonder where you copied and pasted this from. Also, yeah. I would do a quick command F find across your entire project for Ipsum because like <laughs> like leaving lorem Ipsum in your site is is like a, a guaranteed eye roll when somebody launches something new and you see that Ipsum. You're just like, ooh, they did not even they did not even touch this. Next up, we have accessibility. So we just did a, an entire podcast on accessibility. It got some really good reception. So go back and listen to that if you're interested. But Scott said, run it through the Axe accessibility checker. Check that all of your images have alt text on it. Run the color contrast checker that will that will show up in Axe. Tab order, things like that. By the way, we have, have we had a pull request to add the skip to content to the Syntax website, which is amazing. And we also have currently 45 pull requests yeah. in the Syntax because of Hacktoberfest. Yeah. So thanks to everybody. We have somebody is just DMing me asking if we need some help wading through all those pull requests. So I'm, I'm gonna gonna get some help on that. Oh, that's it's, great. Yeah. It's wow. been amazing. People have been pull requesting left and right, all kinds of helpful accessibility stuff, new features, little fixes. It's it's been great. Yeah. So just go through the entire accessibility podcast and make sure that you have all of that stuff squared away because that's not something that you want to goof up on. Yeah. Use that uh keyboard. Like use the site with just your keyboard like that. That's a good indicator of if things are going OK and you're very frustrated if like you can't get around your site with just a keyboard. Next up, we have SEO in a really good part of having good SEO is having an excellent domain name. And one of the great ways that you can get a great domain name is through dot tech domains. Because .tech domain names, well, that not only describes perfectly what we're doing in tech here, but there's also a ton of excellent availability for some of those URLs and domain names that you might not have been able to get with maybe a .io that's super duper expensive or all, uh, you know, bought up at this point and things like that. And .tech, they have some good prices on some of this stuff. Yeah, so we've all been there. It's impossible to find a domain name that is available and you end up creating a company that's called like Tutorial or Lurie. <laughs> <laughs> or so you just add ly to everything or all the dot ios are almost all snapped up right now there's there's even this like guy who runs a dot io reseller website making bank off of that just because of the demand for tech domains is huge right so dot tech is coming out it's one of the new tlds top level domains where you can go ahead and and i if if i were you i'd probably go ahead and and grab the dot tech of your own name or maybe even your first name is still available i, I would definitely check that out this is really cool because the .io, which is pretty popular, it's really expensive. It used to be 99 bucks a year. The .ios are still like, I think, 49, 45 bucks a year. If you want to use the code syntax at get.tech, that's where you're going to go to register this thing. Get.tech. You're going to get the sweet, uh, first sweet year. Domain. That's pretty sweet. For one year for $4.99 or five years for $24.99. So you can get it for five years for half the price of one year of a .io domain name. So check it out at get.tech. 
and uh, it'll let us know if you register your own .tech domain name. So thanks so much to them for sponsoring. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So let's get into this uh, SEO. So you've got your excellent new .tech domain name that says exactly what you're doing uh, with your, your thing. So it becomes nice and searchable. What are some other SEO tips we can have before launch? I think one of the biggest ones is to make sure that you have a sitemap that is current, modern, and one of those ones that you don't have to like update yourself. I know uh, if you have any sort of full stack platform or maybe you're even using like a Gatsby site, there's a Gatsby plugin that just generates a sitemap for you. But either way, having that ability to have a, a sitemap created uh, and uploaded to, I think it's is it still called Google Webmaster Tools or is it called Search Console or one of those things, but make sure it's uploaded to the Google Webmaster Tools and that your, yeah. your sitemap is accurate and up to date. There's a whole bunch of different SEO checkers you can get out there. It really depends if SEO is something that you are concerned about. One big one, especially if you're launching a new application where you've done the routing yourself, is you make sure that if you have two different URLs for the same page that they point back to each other, that's called a canonical domain name, especially things like WordPress will automatically do this for you. If there's the possibility of reaching that domain name via like an ID, but also via like a slug, then you make sure that those are pointing all in the, in the same same way way. If you're doing React and you care about SEO, make sure that all of your server side rendering is up. One big one is making sure all of your meta tags are properly filled out. I often will just say test, test, test or fill this in later and then forget to do that. Uh, so making sure that those are all filled out as well as your meta tags for open graph or, or for sharing. So Every time mm-hmm. someone shares your website to Twitter or to Facebook or to Pinterest or to LinkedIn, you know how they pull up a, a photo. You can manually set those via the meta tags or the open graph meta tags. And what often happens is that you have an old domain name that has a cache version of those meta tags and that image, or you've launched it and since changed the design of that like banner image. So what you need to do is just go to all of the tools. I think it's called the Facebook debugger. And Twitter has a a version of this as well. And I think LinkedIn does as well. And you can just put in the URL of your website and then clear all of the cached values for that. And that will make sure that if you have a new website and you share it out, your old logo or your old banner is not going to be showing up on there. And that's especially helpful. Sometimes you don't. Those are the last things you do. Mm -hmm. And if someone if someone were to share that website to Twitter before you've done it, then the unfinished version would be cached in there. And that can lead to some headaches. Yeah, definite headaches. Uh, that's one thing. Also, you want to make sure that you have like those images in case you're, what are they called? Like the device images? Shoot. I know this isn't necessarily an SEO thing, but it's in the same sort of realm of meta tags. Like the you, meta. The meta, yeah, the meta images for when people save your site to the desktop or bookmark it. Because that shows up as an icon. And I don't know how it works on iOS. I'm sure it's the same thing. But when you save a website to your homepage in Android, it looks like any other icon on your homepage. So that's definitely something that you want to make sure is there for those users. The last thing you want to send is some sort of generic image in that place because people do when I bookmark things and save them to my desktop if it has like a nice little app icon I'm always pleasantly surprised next we have analytics that's which called it that. hold on I got it I found it it's called the Apple touch icon on iOS. Apple so. yeah yeah so there's generators that will just produce all of those for you with a favicon and all that stuff you just pass in an image and it shoots out a whole bunch of stuff yeah definitely check those out yeah that's one thing I actually don't do with my own is set the the theme color. Is this on Android where it sets the top bar color yeah. to match your website? I don't, I need to do that. Do it. It's so easy. I have the theme color set and it, it makes my site look so much more lovely on Android devices. I don't know why iOS doesn't do that. Yeah, that would be really. And another thing I haven't done yet is I have the new iPhone with the notch in it. I've not made my websites notch friendly. Mm, yeah, I have not done that either. I, I 
You should, I should probably just get one of those phones to have sitting around just to test it on. Notch phone. Although Courtney's, life, Courtney yeah. has a Pixel 3 and that has a notch. I wonder if it is the same exact. I wonder how it deals with it. Yeah, Hopefully. We'll I hope it's not anything. That's the problem with these fav icons is you need a generator to, to yeah, cover them all. They all implement ones. their own custom version. Hopefully there's no like eight different versions of notch CSS <laughs> that you have to put in to make it work. Notch.css. Next we have <laughs> is analytics, which is, I don't know the last time I've launched a site without having Google analytics set up. It's super easy. You just sign up for your account you put it in, you put the tracking code in and yeah, just analytics is nice to have. And Google analytics is so easy to set up. There's a whole host of other analytics. I don't know if you use any other different types of analytics. I had heap analytics set up for a little bit, but I haven't necessarily gotten in too much into it other than that. But I personally, yeah, I don't remember the last time I launched a site without having a Google analytics key in there. Yeah, well, another this dives into whether or not you hate Facebook or not. But what most people will recommend is to pop a Facebook tracking pixel in there, because even if you're not doing Facebook ads at the time, having lots of traffic go through your Facebook tracking pixel will allow you to in the future, you can say, OK, 6000 people have been to my website. I can track. I can now try to to pop a Instagram or Facebook ad in their feed for my product. But I can also take those 6000 people because those are my actual. 6,000 customers and you can create audiences based off of that. So maybe 60,000 people who are very similar to that. So I've tried that. It doesn't work very well for web developers. Also have found that my all of my tracking, all of my analytics is garbage because almost everybody who visits my website is running an ad blocker. No, yeah. So they're being blocked anyway. So I haven't used that all that much, but I do still run them just in case at any point, if I want to try this stuff, you need like a really good sample size before you even get into that word. Last one is your server config and access. So you have your HT access file. If you're running an Apache server, make sure you put any redirects in there. So if you have an old version, this is something that I've found myself is since I've changed my application over three or four times since I've started producing courses, I have all of these legacy URLs because mm-hmm. what happens is people open a four year old email and click the link and that doesn't work. And then, then they, they say, hey, this URL doesn't work anymore. So I need to make sure that I have old redirects in place. I actually don't do this at an HT access level. Um, yeah, that's probably some, yeah. more something like if you were to change a directory of where you've installed WordPress or something like that, you might want to do a mass switch. In my case, I just do it at a, in my application. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to that, you want to check to make sure your robots.txt file has all of the correct information in terms of what URLs you don't want crawled because it's important, right? There's not everything, even if you're going for SEO on your site, there's chances are not everything on your site you'll want crawled by a Google spider or any sort of other web search engine. So make sure your robots.txt prevents indexing of the pages that you don't want to be indexed. Other little things. It's funny that we talk about like HD access and gzip and, and caching. A lot of this stuff, if you use like something like Heroku or Zites now. So easy. Yeah. You don't have to worry about these. So if you use Netlify your own too, hosting yeah. platform, Netlify, you don't have to worry about any of this stuff. But if you are still running your own server, make sure you have caching turned on. Make sure you're enabling gzip. What gzip, maybe we should explain that real quick. Gzip, what, what it will do is like, let's say you have a JavaScript file and it says, I love to eat cookies. And then you have, uh, and then later in that JavaScript file, it says, I like to eat pizza. (laughs) 
the word I like to eat is now twice in that JavaScript file. And what gzip will do is it will just sort of be like, oh, I like to eat is sort of like a variable. Instead of having sending the text twice, let's just replace that with a reference to it where we put it once. And, and that anytime you have duplicate content, same with like CSS selectors or something like that, it will compress it. And you can have significant savings if your server has gzip turned on. Yeah, that's a big one. It definitely. And, and I like, again, I prefer any services that do this stuff without me having to do it myself. But if you are the uh, server management type, go ahead and take care of all of this stuff yourself. Another good thing to check in that regard is to make sure you have your CDN correctly functioning, whether or not you're using Cloudflare or another CDN for a lot of reasons for your content access and your content delivery, but also for that like Cloudflare DDoS protection and the, that good stuff. So if, if you, uh, I mean, it's, it's free to get started. So so I would I would definitely recommend using Cloudflare or some other CDN in front of your site. And it's not a bad thing to do at the very end, too, because it's a nice little optimization. Finally, we have here is just company processes. Make sure that everything internally, this should be part of your development workflow anyways, but make sure your tests are obviously passing. Make sure the Git, Git issues are closed. Any pull requests that need to be merged, obviously those should be merged as well. Scott has a note here on documentation. I think that's a really good point because when you're in the headspace of this thing, it's best to write it down at that point, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, and I think so too. It's 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 also good to have like your like your processes. Like here's how to deploy this. Here's how to update this. Here's how to do this because maybe you've just updated this site and it's working for one week and you're like, okay, everything's working. It's time for me to take my vacation and then you leave and then something is going wrong on the second week maybe you had a variable that is self-destructs after one week for some reason the whole thing blows up it's important to know uh, exactly how to fix this if someone else needs to step in and fix this and how to how to work inside of this project so uh, yeah readme's documentation processes make sure all that stuff's documented correctly also some places it's a great idea to have a staging environment that you can push to push to a staging environment that's essentially the same kind of server as your production server uh, you would push the production build there it's probably going to be password protected and not crawled and then you can test out your site in an actual environment to make sure that the production build is going to be as expected that way you don't run into any of those little weird issues with correct dependencies not loading like we had mentioned before before the package.lock thing I just thought a couple more things here. This has nothing to do with company processes, but um, DNS propagation. Don't flip over your DNS like right before launch because it might work for you, but it might not work for everyone around the world. So try to do that at least a day or two ahead or have it set up where you can just swap the A records of your domain name and that will be instant rather than having to wait for DNS to propagate. Check it in di different countries. This is something that I ran into when I soft launched my course. I didn't have my Cloudflare installed and people weren't able to get the country code discounts. I didn't even think about that. And luckily it was just a quick flip on of Cloudflare and everything started to work. But just like little things, you gotta think about like what different devices are people on? What different countries are people on? What different speeds are people on? What different size monitors are people on? You have to think about it's not just your ideal production environment that's running on your computer. Yeah, I have one, one tiny little last one. Make sure that there's no unwanted console logs or console errors left in your code uh, that you don't yes. want your users to see. You Maybe you're, you're logging out the entire object of something just to debug it. Or maybe you just had some little little debug and to-do later sort of stuff in there. And yeah, just get rid of that stuff. You don't need it in there. And obviously it's... You can really run into some issues too, because 
if you have like a console log of like a, an object and it's in a route and you have 10,000 people hit that route, your server logs can get into gigs real quick. Oh, yeah. Server and that, logs, yeah. And if you're running like a little SSD or you're running like a little DigitalOcean droplet, you can run out of space pretty. I think they gave you to what, 20 gigs. That happened to me before. Yeah, that's happened to me. Yeah. Where my server logs filled up and I was like, what? How is my droplet full? And then I was like, oh, dang. <laughs> logs. Yeah. You got to be careful with those those console logs. You, you think, ah, it's server side. No one will ever see it. But that will likely go into your server logs. And then before you know it, you have a six gig .txt file yeah. or .log file. And it's you have to just nuke the thing. It's, it's easy to get rid of, right? But it could cause your... I've, I've totally run out of space on my droplet before. And it just stops. When I run out of space, it stops serving JavaScript files. Yep. So the website still works, but the JavaScript doesn't work. And people are all really confused. Confused. It's just not a good space to be in. Cool. I think that's it. I think that's pretty much everything. If we left something off of here, tweet us out. Let us know that what sort of pre-launch stuff you like to do that maybe we didn't cover, and we'll we'll give you a, a big old retweet right there. So, yeah. Any any uh, final things, or is that it for you? I'm ready to talk about sick picks. I got a good one. Hey, I got a good one too. And uh, this is my my good one is for those of you who like the uh, Darknet Diaries podcast. I know a ton Ooh, of people yes. really like that podcast. And this podcast was actually suggested to me by the creator of Darknet Diaries. So uh, <laughs> so this podcast is is a very similar audience for that and in fact the presentation is really excellent i this is it's called swindled so swindledpodcast.com or you could just google swindled in the podcast player it's about basically people who are swindling other people and the latest episode which is on the fire festival i don't know if you know anything about the fire festival but it was such a good listen yeah i knew the is whole story ja rule yeah it was where jaw rule and this super rich kid were he's a rich loser who's basically swindling people his whole life and they put on this concert. The whole thing was outrageous. Actually, one of the most outrageous aspects of the story is they mentioned that was it one of the the Kardashians or Jenners or whoever was paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars just to have an Instagram post saying they were going to it, and they didn't disclose that it was an ad. They just said, "Hey, oh I'm going gosh. to this thing," and they were paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Did not Holy disclose. Smokes. Did not go. Didn't get in trouble for that at all, and got to keep that money after the fact. That's outrageous to me that you could just fake at you could like do a non-transparent advertisement like that and get away with but besides the point this podcast has some magical story element or storytelling elements to it i like cannot express how cool it is he goes through these like stories that are sort of tangentially related and it'll sort of like weave its way into the main storyline and then all of a sudden you're in the main storyline you're like how the heck did we get here there was like one where he was talking about like John Edwards, the political candidate, and he was cheating on his wife with this woman who was like uh, doing his videographer. And her dad had hired someone to kill the family horse. The guy that killed the family horse was a part of a horse killing, like not like a, it was like a group of people or something that went around killing horses for insurance money. Another guy who was also doing that was then involved in the main story of this podcast. So it like did this huge... Like weaving its way and then all of a sudden you're at the main story of the podcast and you're like, wow, this is so wild how we got here. Uh, But the storytelling is incredible. It is very similar to the Darknet Diaries and how he goes about things and the atmosphere of it. I've just loved this podcast. 
Man, I can't wait. I was looking last night. I was like, I need something like Darknet Diaries. I just need something that's entertaining rather than all the business podcasts that I listen to all the time. Yeah, this uh, Swindled, the Fire Festival one is a great first listen and it totally tells the whole story of everything. It's awesome. My sick pick is going to be what's called FIFO bottles, which FIFO, if you've worked in the restaurant industry ever since for first in, first out, meaning that if you get a shipment of strawberries and then two days later you get another shipment of strawberries, you obviously obviously use the strawberries that were first in mm, they yeah. are the first out right makes yeah, sense yeah. i don't know this is in the states you have subway where they've got the bottles yeah the squeezy you bottles just, yeah that's my sick pick these are called fifo bottles huh. and i've had these for about two two and a half years i got them for christmas which is a weird christmas gift but i basically <laughs> told my wife kaylin i said I want our house to be like Subway um, because I hate you buy ketchup and it's in the stupid bottle and it squirts all the time. And then you buy mustard and then the mustard stands straight up and you have to like shake it to get it out. And then you have like mayo and you got to get a knife and you get it all over your wrist. And <laughs> it's terrible, right? This you don't get it on your wrist. But, but so what these FIFA bottles are is that they're bottles that stand straight up. The squeeze part is at the bottom of the bottle. And then there's a, a thing that you take off on the top. And then you just put the ketchup or the mustard or the mayo or the barbecue sauce into the top. And then the, the bottles are always you never have to flip the bottle over because you just pick it up, do squeeze a quick it. little squeeze throw it back in and the added benefit that means that you're you're obviously getting the oldest stuff first and then the benefit of that is that your your fridge is just like all of the same bottles right you don't have like a weird mayo that's huge or if you have like you buy a new mayo and you can just put it into the old one just put it in, and it'll make sure that you don't have to finish the other one first and anytime I make like a custom sauce I just grab a little FIFO bottle and fill it up I got them about two years ago I think and uh, they've worked really well. They've never fallen apart. The seals on them are really good. They're high quality. The weird thing about it is that they're made in Canada, but they're like so expensive. I think I got a 12 pack for like 70 bucks back then. And then I just looked on the American Amazon and you can get a six pack for 14 bucks. Uh, yeah. Enough. Yeah. That's the sound of me going to Amazon right now. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, just got to get your condiment life in order. If you want to be a good web developer, you got to start with your condiments in your fridge. I'm all about optimization. And yeah, yeah, that is a big thing. Just optimize it. You got to standardize your bottle so everything is exactly the same. Cool. I'm all in on this. I like it. Sick pick. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I've got a couple more like little kitchen picks that I'm going to going to drop because people in the fitness episode said they enjoyed the cooking tips. So I'm going to drop a couple more uh, kitchen sick tips. Can't picks. wait. Can't wait. <laughs> Cool. So uh, shameless plugs, I'm going to be plugging uh, Level Up Tutorials Pro. Uh, it's the pro subscription where you get access to all of the premium Level Up Tutorials content. There's like over 300 plus videos right now, not to mention a new series every single month. This month's series that's coming out in October is Pro Gatsby 2. It's the follow-up to the uh, very successful Pro Gatsby course. Everyone really loved Pro Gatsby. Well, Gatsby came out with a, a hot new version, version number two in Pro Gatsby 2. Not only make sure that you are covered with all of the new awesome stuff inside of Gatsby 2, but it's also basically, it, you can imagine getting a do-over 
on something that was already very good. So I think I knocked the first one out of the park when I made that tutorial series. And basically I got to look at that series and say, all right, what could have been better about this for this Pro Gatsby 2? And I really think this is one of my best courses ever. So Pro Gatsby 2 is going to be coming out in October. We're going to be covering all of the little things about Gatsby. And by the end of it, you're going to be a total master. You're going to know exactly what to do, how to do, how to get these super duper blazingly fast sites in Gatsby. So check it up at level tutorials.com forward slash pro. You can sign up for the year and save 25%, get access to 12 new tutorial series along with all of the uh, existing tutorial series that are up right now. Awesome. I got a sick pick or no, I'm not sick picking. I'm shamelessly plugging my advanced react course. If you didn't hear last week, I finally launched it at advancedreact.com. It's the long name of it is full stack advanced react and GraphQL, which uh, some guy on Twitter lovingly called it a verbal vomit of tech buzzwords. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. That You should put that uh, so, on your reviews page, just like that yeah. quote. <laughs> Anyways, we are building a full stack application. We build a GraphQL server on the back end with Node.js. So if you if you know any of the Express stuff that we've learned in my Node course, um, all of the middlewares, all of that will apply. We use React and Apollo on the front end for managing all of my data. A lot of people have been asking, what about Redux? Apollo is sort of a replacement for Redux. Uh, in which it will fetch the data from from the server. It will do caching on the server or sorry, it'll do caching on the client. We'll be able to define how stuff gets updated. You can do local data as well as server data. So it's sort of the whole thing. We build an online store. We actually check out with credit cards, which is pretty cool. I'm really proud of it. People are really, really enjoying it so far. It's at advancedreact.com and use the coupon code syntax. You're going to get 10 bucks off. Sick. Sick. I think that's it for today. Anything else? No, that's it. Launch your sites with confidence. No more, uh, (laughs) no more uh (laughs) uh-ohs. All right. Good luck. And we'll see you next week. Later. Peace. Peace. Head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all of our shows. And don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player or drop a review if you like this show.